Thanks for tuning in to the Met Church Podcast. Here at the Met, we are all about connecting people to God and one another. If you have any questions or want more information about what's going on here at the church, then head to our website at metchurch.com. We would love to stay connected with you throughout the week through social media, so be sure to connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Now, enjoy the message. Well, good morning, everyone. It's great to welcome you in the room and those of you who watch online. Thank you for doing that. Thank you for sharing the services. I think that's a great reason why we reach so many people is because you go online with us, you share these services with us, and family and friends watch. So thanks for doing that. We're in a series called Better. We're looking at the book of Hebrews and all the various things the writer of the Hebrews says are better. We've talked about how we serve a better savior. There's no one better in this world, in any world, in the universe, uh, past, present, or future, no one better than Jesus. He's a better savior. We talked about how he's a better mediator. He's the go-between between us and God. He's a better advocate. He's our attorney that stands in the presence of God. He's our high priest. He offers uh, the sacrifice through his own blood for us. He is our savior, he's our redeemer, he's our friend. There's no one better, no one better than Jesus. And the writer of Hebrews is writing to people going through stuff and he's reminding them, you have a better savior, you have a better friend. He'll come into your life if every friend walks out. He's a better one that he'll never uh, leave you, he'll never forsake you. Jesus is better. We've talked about how he's better than the old sacrificial system that the Bible spoke of in the Old Testament. He's better than any of that. He's better than the law. He's better than the Mosaic law. He's better than all that. And all you find, all of that you find rather, in the book of Hebrews as he talks about better things. And this morning I wanna talk to you about another better thing that's mentioned in Hebrews and that is a better promise. Jesus brings about a better promise, a better testament, if you will, a better covenant, if you will, a better contract, if you will, a better agreement, if you will. There are a lot of things we could talk about that all fly under that idea that he brings about a better promise. Uh, The promise of Jesus, in fact, goes all the way back to Adam and Eve. You see, so many times people make the mistake of thinking that the Old Testament is outdated, it's not relevant, you can't find much of uh, you know, contemporary application in the reading or the studying of the Old Testament, it's just not true, you absolutely can't. The Bible says all scripture, all scripture is given by God, God breathed, and it's profitable. All scripture is profitable for instruction, for correction, so that we may be thoroughly furnished. So the Old Testament is relevant. The Old Testament is significant. The Old Testament is important. The Old Testament is all about Jesus, by the way. All of the Old Testament, the theme of the Old Testament is simply this, Jesus the Messiah, he's coming. He's coming. It's seen in the sacrificial system. It's seen in the law that was given. It's seen in the various covenants that are made there. Everything is pointing people to Jesus. And as I said, you can see it all the way back to Adam and Eve. You remember the first murder of the Bible was the children of Adam and Eve who were fighting over the sacrifice. One offered a blood sacrifice, the other offered a sacrifice that was of the fruit of the ground. How did they get that idea? Well, they understood the sacrificial system. The first prophecy concerning the coming of Jesus is in Genesis 3.15. So almost to the very beginning of the word, certainly right after sin enters the picture, you have this picture of Jesus one day who would come. So he's depicted in all of the covenants. Jesus is coming. Uh, You have the covenant that was given to Noah. 
And that covenant was designed to say to all the people of Noah, God has a standard and God wants to communicate his love to his people. You have the covenant that was given to Abraham and in the Abrahamic covenant, God has chosen a people. He has the covenant that was given to Moses, the covenant that was given to David. And all of these covenants you find in the old covenant called the Old Testament were all designed to communicate to people of that day the promise of Jesus. One day he would come. Now the word covenant is an interesting word. Uh, it's the idea of a contract for us today. You have an Old Testament, an Old Covenant. Uh, it, it's, it's, uh, it's a, the, in fact, the Hebrew word for covenant is interesting. It's cutting, cutting. Now, when you in the Old Testament days, when you would enter into a contract with someone, you would take an animal, like you'd take a, a, a sheep, for example, and you would cut the animal in two. Wow. And then you would separate the two parts of the animal in cutting the animal until you separate the and then you and whoever you're making the agreement would, with would walk through the blood of the animal. Now, aren't you glad we don't do that today? Can you imagine grabbing a sheep and going down to trade cars? <laughs> I want to close on my house. I brought my goat. <laughs> I mean, thank God that doesn't happen anymore. But that was a, a, the way it was communicated back in that day. It was the idea of cutting. And there were several contracts that were in scripture. And when you read the Bible, you see these. There was one contract called a bilateral parity contract or a bilateral parity uh, covenant. And that means it was a covenant made mutually between two parties. It was a covenant that would be benefit both parties. It was a covenant God made with his people when he said to his people, I'll do this provided you do that. And as long as you do that, I'll, I'll keep my word to you. But when you break your word to me, that I'm no longer obligated to keep my word to you. Bilateral parity contract. There was a second type of a, a covenant called a bilateral uh, suzerenta contract, which was done by a sovereign, by a king, uh, to the people that he was serving. And it was a, a contract where it was not um, unilateral in the sense that the people uh, had no say in it. It was all coming from the king down. Uh, he set the terms and the king basically said, this is what I decree, therefore you have to follow my order. And so under that heading, God had given people, when you read Deuteronomy 28, certain commands and certain requirements and certain expectations. And he was giving th those expectations, commands, laws, if you will, to the people to follow and they had no say so in it. They didn't say, well, can we kick out one of those uh, commands? I mean, I, I don't know about that eighth or ninth command. What, can we go back and revisit that? No, those were given and God says, as king, as sovereign, as your Lord, uh, as the creator of the universe, I solemnly or sovereignly decree this to be, to be true. This is the expectation I have with you. And that was the second type of covenant, contract, promise, or agreement. Then there was a third. There was a third called a promissory. A covenant. The promissory cov covenant was made by an individual without anyone else involved, and the covenant was made by an individual for the benefit of other individuals. In other words, one person could, could stand forward and say, I covenant to do this for my spouse, my significant other, my kids, my friends, I mean, whoever. You would make a covenant and you were committing to them, you're going to do this, you're going to do this for their benefit. A promissory covenant. And then you would cut the animal, you'd walk through the animal, thus signifying through blood that you are absolutely committed to this covenant. But the point is, all of those covenants, Noah, the Abrahamic, the Mosaic, the Davidic, all of those covenants that you find in the Old Testament 
All of the laws, by the way, that were given in the Old Testament were ways that God was communicating his presence and his power to those people. It was the way in which God was demonstrated who he is and what he is to the people of that day. For example, the law was given to show the standard of God and the standard of God is perfection. Now the people tried to live up to the standard of the law, but they failed miserably. <laughs> I mean, when you read in uh, Exodus 19, you read Exodus 34, you read where the expectation was put out there, the law was given, and time and time again, the people just said, we blew it, we failed, we couldn't keep it. But the law was never given as a means of people trying to keep it so that they would be in favor uh, with God. It was never done, given, uh, so that people could be justified, better said, in the presence of God. It was given so that people would be brought to the awareness that they're imperfect before God. You see the difference? God is perfect, his standard is perfect, the law is perfect, and anything less than that standard is a violation of the law. So what was the purpose of the law? Well, I can give you a few. The law was given to restrain. Uh, in Romans chapter seven, verse 12, the law is holy. The commandment is holy, righteous and good. So it was given to restrain. It, the law, think of the law like bumpers on the road. You don't really know they're there, curbs. You don't know they're there until you stray off of the road. The road is grace. And when you go off of the road, you hit the law and it's designed to bring you back into the road again. Now, you find grace throughout the Old Testament. Go to Genesis 7, the Bible says Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Sometimes you think of the Old Testament and you see God as the Old Testament God, you know, smiting them hip and thigh, and you forget that mercy and grace was always extended to people. I mean, this covenant and these laws were given to bring people guilty before God. So that they would simply say humbly, God, I can't, but you can. That was the point. So they were given as a means of restraining people. I mean, there were, for example, there were moral laws. We have those today, right? We decided in our country that it isn't moral to steal from someone, so we passed a law. We said you shouldn't, uh, you know, you shouldn't harm someone. We don't think that's morally right. We passed a law. Well, those Old Testament laws, there were moral laws. There, there were civil laws in the Old Testament. It was a way whereby people had social contracts to know what the expectation was, there were civil laws. There were ceremonial laws, which governed the way people worshiped. I mean, there was a certain pattern that God said, you'll worship me in this way, with the sacrifice, with the priest, in the temple, in the tabernacle, uh, gave way to the synagogue. All of those were ways whereby people were actually under the ceremonial law taught to worship. Now, when you move forward into the New Testament, the new covenant, the new promise, he doesn't define the ceremonial laws. In other words, when he launched the church, he didn't say this is the way you are to worship. Here are the qualifiers for a church, different from the old covenant, here's the new covenant qualifiers. He said, those who worship me must worship me in spirit and in truth. Meaning there should be an anointing in your worship and an authenticity in your worship. And he said, when the anointing is there and the authenticity is there, that's worship that I will receive. So those are the qualifiers. He doesn't get into the style of music. <laughs> he doesn't get into, you know, hymns or no hymns. We hang up on all that stuff. Isn't that crazy? I mean, anyway, but he doesn't get into None of that is there. I mean, I, everybody has their preferences. I get, I know what melts your spiritual butter may not melt mine. That's okay. It's okay. We can have those preferences, but don't go back and say they're biblical standards because you can't support that. It's called an opinion. 
You see, a conviction cannot chase this rabbit. A, convi a, a conviction is something you're willing to die for. Somebody said, well, I have a conviction. A conviction is something you're absolutely willing to die for. Otherwise, it's an opinion. That's a hill on which I won't die, or styles of music in church. Just won't die on that hill. It's opinion. And they're all good, and they're all valid, but, you know, we all have them. <laughs> so the point being, ceremonial laws aren't valid anymore. Civil laws, we still deal with those and how we relate to one another. Moral laws are obviously valid. We still have those. We can point to. But the point I'm making, and don't miss this, all of those things instituted in the Old Testament were instituted as a means of pointing people toward Jesus. That's why I say if you read the Old Testament, you don't see Jesus, reread the Old Testament. The sacrificial system can be traced back to Adam and Eve. The first priest uh, was said Adam was a priest over his household. Job, the oldest book in the Bible, it was said Job was a priest over his household. Uh, Genesis 14, Melchizedek was a high priest. By the way, Abraham paid tithes. So tithing was there before the law, by the way. Tithing was there. Uh, Melchizedek received the tithes of Abraham. So my point is all of these concepts uh, priesthood, sacrifice, temple, tabernacle, all of the covenants that God made, the agreements, the contracts with his people, the laws that he instituted, all of those things were given to point people toward Jesus. So the law was valid. So the law did this thing of restraining people. By the way, the, the law revealed things about people. Look at Romans chapter five, I'm sorry, look at Romans three, verse 20. The Bible says, by law is the knowledge of sin. There's a standard. We're measured by that standard. That's why he said in Romans 3.23, just a few verses below that, he said, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Now, what's that phrase, uh, expression, short of the glory of God? What does that mean? It means the standard of perfection. So God's standard of perfection, the law, is holy and just. And when we do, we look at our lives compared to the law and we say, man, I've fallen short. I may not have violated all the commands, but I've sure broke a few. <laughs> and in the Old Testament, you had to actually physically break the command. Jesus said in the New Testament, if you think about killing your brother in your heart, if you hate him enough to kill him, you've already killed him. Now understand, if you hate me, I'd rather you hate me in your heart than actually kill me. He's just drawing a distinction. He's simply saying that we're all guilty before God. He's saying that no one is perfect, no one ha has lived life without violating uh, the law in some way. So the law was given to reveal uh, that to us and to them in the Old Testament. So it was a standard. It was a standard of perfection to keep all of the law. You could be perfect, and if you're perfect, you could gain entrance into heaven. No one could. Everybody violated, even the priests violated the law. The first offering that the priest had to offer before they could offer on behalf of the people, they had to offer for their own sins. There are no perfect priests. There still aren't any. <laughs> There's no perfect people. All have sinned. Did you miss that? <laughs> and come short of the glory of God. How do I know that? I, don't, I know that by not comparing us to each other. See, don't do that. Well, compared to them, I look pretty good. Well, you may. Paul said, if you compare yourselves among yourselves, it's not wise. You know why? Because it's not a good standard. You know, you're comparing yourself to an imperfect standard. You're saying next to this person, I look pretty good. Well, you may, but don't look at yourself next to the person. Look at yourself next to the perfect law of God. That was the standard he gave in the Old Testament. New Testament, I'd say, look at yourself in relation to Jesus. And what will happen when you look at yourself in relation to him, you'll say, oh man, 
<laughs> There's none that does good, none that want, not, no, not one. All have sinned. I agree. I'm in that group. So the law restrains, the law reveals. By the way, the law brings about repentance. When you look at Genesis 3, verse 24, the law was our schoolmaster. It taught us something. What did it do? It brought us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. So the law was important, bringing us to Christ. Why? So that we could be justified by faith. So never think that in the Old Testament, those people came to faith in Christ by keeping the law or by living up to all the requirements of those covenants because they didn't. They fell short. People in the Old Testament, as I've shared before, were saved by faith through grace the same way people in the New Testament in our day are saved by grace through faith. There's always and only been one way to heaven. Let me give you a great example. Remember Abraham. Two great world religions trace their roots to Father Abraham. And here is Abraham, and Paul uses him as an example in Romans 4. He says, what is it that our father Abraham, as pertaining to the flesh, what did father Abraham find? And then he answers the question. Abraham believed God. What? Abraham lived up to all the tenets of the Abrahamic covenant. Didn't say that. Abraham was a sinful man. He lied about his wife. He married this hot gal, and he thought the king was going to steal his wife from him. And the way he would do it is he'd kill Abraham to take his wife. So Abraham said, nah, it's just my sister. Liar, liar, pants on fire. <laughs> so he lied. Noah, Noah got drunk. I heard a pastor friend of mine said, I used to criticize Noah for getting drunk after he built the ark till we built a church building. <laughs> he said, I don't criticize anybody getting drunk after they build something, but I digress. Here's the point. The point is these men were all imperfect. The women and the, all imperfect. They weren't, they weren't saved because they kept the law or saved because they were true to the covenant agreements that God had made between them, either God down or between the mutual agreements that they had. That isn't what brought them about salvation. It was their belief in the coming of the Messiah. It was their belief in what the sacrificial system represented. That sacrifice represented Messiah one day who would come to take away the sin. They believed in that. So they followed in that, in that system because that's what God had set up, pointing them toward Jesus. That's why people in the Old Testament were saved by faith, as I said, through grace, looking forward to the cross. You and I are saved by faith through grace, looking back at the cross. The cross is the centerpiece of all human history. And there in the Old Testament, those people were taught through covenants and through laws and through interactions and different ways with God about his presence about his power, about his purpose. So when you read the Old Testament, as I said a moment ago, you understand the Old Testament is Jesus concealed. Concealed. The New Testament is Jesus revealed. <laughs> John on the banks of the Jordan. Behold, here he is, the Lamb of God. The sacrifice that will end all the sacrifices went all the way back to Adam and Eve. That's all going away. It's a new system. It's a new day. It's a new promise. It's a new covenant, it's a new contract, it's a new agreement. The old is wonderful in what it represented and we can learn so much from the old because it pointed us toward the new, but the new has come. And the new is better than the old. What would you rather have, a picture of someone you love or be in the presence of someone you love? The Old Testament is a picture. The New Testament is his presence. And when you look in the Old Testament, it says, here he is, this is what it's gonna look like, this is Jesus, he's coming one day. New Testament, John said, here he is. 
And when you receive him as Savior, you get the Spirit of Christ to live within you. You have his presence within you. So the promise that Jesus brought is new and exciting and great. In fact, look with me quickly in Hebrews chapter 8. I'll share a few principles with you and we'll go home. In Hebrews chapter 8, he's bringing this thought home in verse 6. He says, Jesus is the mediator, here it is, of a better covenant. It's not the sacrifice and it's not the, the symbolism. It no longer, this is, this is better. This is better, this is newer, which he established, note now, on better promises. For if the first covenant had been faultless, then there would have been no place for a second. He said if the first covenant had affected permanent salvation, we wouldn't have needed a second. But the sacrificial system meant you had to offer a sacrifice every year, year after year after year. Like I said, the priest would offer the sacrifice for the people, for himself rather, and then for the people. That had to be done every year. So he's saying if the old had affected and made permanent salvation and forgiveness of sin, there wouldn't have been any need for a new. But he goes on to say, because finding fault with them, now the fault in the old covenant was not the covenant, it was the people. That's when you read the word fault. He's not faulting the old covenant, he's saying the covenant was good, the people weren't good. The law was perfect, but it was given to imperfect people. You remember when Moses came down from the mountain? Before he could give them the law, they were already breaking it. <laughs> so the point is, it was a perfect law. It was a standard of God. It was a picture of God given to imperfect pictures, uh, people. So he was saying the fault was with the people. And then he gives a prophecy. If you want to read the prophecy, it's in Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through about 34. And Jeremiah prophesied that there will come a day when the old covenant will give way to the new. Don't miss that. I mean, Jeremiah way back in the Old Testament said, there's going to come a day when this system is going to give way. This sacrificial system, this old covenant, this old agreement with God is gonna give way and there's gonna be a new agreement, a new covenant, a new testament, if you will. That's coming and Jeremiah prophesied it in, in this. The writer of Hebrew quotes that prophecy. The days are coming. I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because, look, they did not continue in my covenant, and I disregarded them, says the Lord. They broke the covenant. They broke the agreement. We had a mutual agreement. I'll do this if you do that. They said, we'll do that. They didn't do that, so he didn't do this. <laughs> so he said, you broke covenant. And because you broke covenant, it's now going to necessitate a new covenant, a new agreement. For this is a covenant I'll make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. Note now, I will now put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts. What did Moses do? He gave them laws on tablets of stone. What's Jesus going to do? He's going to write his law on your heart. Boy, don't miss that. That means once you receive Jesus as your Savior and the Holy Spirit comes in uh, to your life, God's law is written on your heart, meaning you're guided by an inner navigation system. Right and wrong your heart. You don't need tablets of stone or some external way of regulating what you should do or shouldn't do. Listen to, the, listen to what God's telling you in your heart. Listen to how he's leading you because he's writing your, his law on your heart. He, he sometimes releases you and sometimes he restrains you. He sometimes says go and sometimes he says no. So once you know Jesus, understand he's written his law on your heart. If you listen to the working of the Holy Spirit within your life, you'll know what you should do. He'll guide you. So he said, I'm going to write it on their hearts. I'll be their God. They'll be my people. Look at verse 11. None of them shall teach his neighbor, none of his brothers, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me from the least to the greatest. And I love verse 12. I'll be merciful 
to their unrighteousness and their sins and lawless deeds, I will remember no more. In that he says, a new covenant. He has made the first obsolete. It's not necessary that we follow the first. Well, now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Yes, there's validity in it. Yes, there's, there's great learning from it, but you don't follow those ceremonial laws. You don't follow uh, those civic laws necessarily. You don't follow the, the sacrificial system of that Old Testament. It's obsolete. Why? There's a new covenant. There's a new promise. Who brought it? Jesus. <laughs> Let me give you quick thoughts about that. Three quick thoughts. We'll go home. Number one, it's unconditional. What Jesus did in the new promise is unconditional. What do I mean by that? It's all on him. He provided it. Jesus brought, in, in fact, when you read verses 10 down through verse 12 of what I read to you a moment ago, six different times God says, I will. I'm gonna do this, I'll do this, I'll do this, I'll do this. What's the point? The point is salvation is not predicated upon me. Salvation is not spelled, spelled D-O, it's spelled D-O-N-E. And Jesus is saying it's unconditional. It's not being conditioned on you, it's, un it's on me. I'm the one that's doing this. And when Jesus paid the price on the cross for our sin, he satisfied the requirement of God uh, for sin. Remember the, the, the Old Testament said the soul that sins will die? If you're in violation of the law, you, you, you're under a death sentence. And Jesus stepped forward and said, I'll pay their price. I'll pay the penalty for their sin. And Jesus died on the cross satisfying the justice of God on sin. And when you look, by the way, in Matthew chapter 5, 17, Jesus said, I didn't come to do away with all that law. I came to fulfill it. Now think about it, because this is good. Not that the other isn't, but this is better. It's simply this. When Jesus fulfilled the law, and you receive him as Savior, positionally, you're in Christ. If you're in Christ, who has fulfilled the law, then through Jesus, you've satisfied the requirement of the law. You get that? I mean, God says, you come into heaven, here's the perfect, this is the standard back in the Old Testament. You say, I can't do it. Like all the other jokers in that Old Testament, there's no way I can do that. But when you receive Jesus, he fulfilled the requirement of the law. So when I stand in him, in God's eyes, he doesn't see my faults. He doesn't see the ways in which I violated the law. That's why the writer, that's why Paul wrote in Romans 8, who shall charge anything to my elect? Who's gonna lay any charge against you that God will uh, hold it against you? Meaning that when you receive Jesus, the penalty was paid, the debt was paid, and you stand in him justified just as if I'd never sinned, and he satisfied the requirements of the law. Positionally. Here's a practical way to think about it. You remember in Matthew 22 when the lawyer approached Jesus and said, you know, how do you fulfill the law? What's the greatest command? And Jesus said, all the law can be summarized Two ways. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus himself said, on these two hang all the law and the prophets. All that Old Testament law, all of that is hung on these two things. Love God, all your heart, soul, and mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. Think about that. If we love God as we should, we'd never violate any command against God. If we loved our neighbor as we should, we'd never violate any command against our neighbor. So there's a practical way whereby we fulfill the law of God in our everyday life is when we love him and we love our neighbor. God says, good job, good job. I'm gonna put a little blue star right there on your life. Good job, you did good today, today. <laughs> so Jesus fulfilled the requirements of the law. I'm just saying this, 
promise that he gives is unconditional because it's all on him and what he did. Number two, it's unlimited. It's unlimited. Verse 12, he said, I'll be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and lawless deeds. I will remember no more. What does he mean by that? I'm forgiving them. I'll remember it no more. I'm forgiving them. Unlimited. You say, Bill, you don't care what I've done. Look back in the Old Testament. Look at them. Man, there's some pretty bad people that are in the Bible. And God loved him. Saved them. Paul said concerning his own life, I'm the chiefest of sinners. He's the first religious terrorist that we know of in the first century. And yet God saved him, changed him. <laughs> so I'm just suggesting to your life that God's forgiveness is available to any and all. And you know what happens when God forgives a beautiful promise in this new promise? You don't have to do that every year. Because Jesus died once and for all. When he forgives you, he forgives you past, present, future, once and for all. To forgive is to release. When someone owes you a hundred bucks and you forgive them of the debt, you've released them of the debt, they're free, but it costs you a hundred bucks. So when God forgives people, it costs. It costs his life there on the cross. But the benefit of it is so incredible because he releases us from our sins, never to be held against us again. And you know what happens when he forgives me? He then, through the presence of his Holy Spirit, gives me the power to forgive other people. Listen, there's a difference between I can't forgive this person and I won't forgive this person. Sometimes people say I won't forgive them even though they have the power to, and I get it, it's a timing thing. You may have to work through some stuff, <laughs> but eventually you need to let it go. You need to forgive them, you need to release them. Sometimes people say I can't forgive them, and they may be telling you the truth. Because when someone says, I can't forgive them, it might be because they've never received forgiveness. So go easy on them. Realize you can't give what you've never received any more than you can come from where you've not been. So I'm just saying, once I've received God's forgiveness, he's released me of it, and now he gives me the power to release other people. And let me tell you, if you get this down, I, I, this will help you. This is good theology and good psychology. Matthew chapter five, verse eight, Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart, for theirs is the kingdom of God, pure in heart. The word pure in the Greek is katharos. We get the word catheter from that word. Now, without me explaining that, let me say it this way. It is an ability to remove impurities from a person, katharos. What he's saying is when your heart is free of impurity, you're blessed. Blessed are the katharos. You get it out of you. you. You release it. You release them. You get that out of you. And when you get it out of you, it purifies your heart. So I'm suggesting to you, as you think about this, when Jesus came with this new promise, this new promise had power. This new promise was something that brought about forgiveness, not just temporary till the process has to happen next year again. He's a sacrifice that ended all that system. This promise, he said, I'll remember your sins no more, which is my third thought. It's an unending promise. It's eternal. It's forever. In the upper room, if you want to see where this promise really was initiated, you go to the upper room. You remember the upper room Jesus sat that night with his disciples? They gathered around the table. All those Jewish young men were there because they understood the significance of Passover. It was time for Passover. 
They'd been taught about Passover since they were little boys. Their great, 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 great grandpa had taught about, been taught about Passover. They'd celebrated it every year. They'd gather around and what was the Passover? It was a reminder of the night when the death angel was going to visit the homes there in Egypt and the ones that didn't have the blood on the doorpost, the death angel would visit. The ones that had the blood on the death, on the, on the doorpost, the death angel would pass over. And it was in that, that action that Pharaoh's heart softened to release the people to go into the promised land. So they celebrated Passover. They celebrated the night, they applied the blood to the doorpost and the death angel passed over them. So generations and generations and generations of Jewish people celebrated Passover. That night was different. They thought they were gathering for Passover. And Jesus said something that probably made their heads spin. He said to them as he took the bread and he took the wine, he said, this do in remembrance of me. They said, whoa, 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 whoa. I thought Passover was in remembrance of the deliver <laughs> deliverance out of Egypt. Where does he get off saying this is about him? Right? I mean, why is all of a sudden this is about Jesus now? I mean, this has been about, this has been about the Mosaic understanding of that covenant, and this has been about all God did, and, and this, this was about that. This is not about him. And Jesus said, no, no, no. This new promise is not about that. It's about me. When you take the bread, it represents my body. When you take the drink, it represents my blood. And now every time we receive communion, it's not about Passover. And as much as it is about the Lord's Supper, where we remember him. By the way, you remember I mentioned the third type of covenant called a promissory covenant? Did you know that's the covenant that Jesus brought? That's a covenant he made on the cross when he shed his blood. A covenant that he made by himself for, for us. It was a promissory covenant. He made it by himself for us. Through the blood of the cross, Jesus says you can come into a relationship with me and a relationship with me. You've satisfied the requirements of the law. You'll never stand in judgment for your sin. You find yourself at the throne of grace, not at the throne of judgment. So ladies and gentlemen, I, I tell you, we got a, we got a better promise. <laughs> he brought us a better deal. Aren't you glad you didn't have to bring a goat to church today? Isn't that good? Don't look at your husband and girls. I didn't mean it that way. I, I'm glad I don't have to do sacrifices. Uh, I, I'm glad we don't have to go through that anymore. I'm glad Jesus has come. He's ended that. We have a better promise. We have a better Savior. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word that never returns void. And as we've looked back and tried to connect some dots to the Old Testament, try, try to cover a lot of stuff. I pray the message will be clear in our hearts and minds that all of that pointed to you and you now have satisfied the requirement of all that. <laughs> so all we need to do now is receive you and to walk in that freedom and in that forgiveness. So I pray for my friends in the room or those watching who may never have invited you into their heart. May this be the moment where they humble themselves and they say, Lord Jesus, with all that I know about me, I now trust all that I know about you. Come into my heart, forgive my sin. This is my prayer, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much for tuning in today with us. 
If you have any questions or prayer requests, please contact us so that we can follow up with you this week by visiting metchurch.com. We look forward to seeing you again next week.